featuring comedy The Crocodile, located right here in the gracious heroin addict district of Seattle. You're sure to be able to score something from the human carnival that's going on outside. At second in Blanchard, uh, which is not to be trifled with in any way. Once again, we join hands and join hearts here uh, in the city uh, that it never is not moist and uh, where people stop for coffee on their way to coffee. I drove up from Portland today through a scaling, scalding, misty, fucking Scottish uh, Loch Nessian dreek the whole way. Uh, My hair got damp at one point. I pulled over to cry for a while. Very difficult lighting jays outside in this kind of weather. I'll be honest with you. I think it's bold and intrepid of Oregon and Washington to be the first recreational states when the weather here does not preclude going outside to light one up. The weather here is not conducive in any way to going outside in general, much less going outside to fucking, hey, let's light up this cone. And then, oh, fuck, moisture. Oh, fuck, moisture. Oh, fuck, moisture. Oh, fuck. Fuck it, let's go inside and light it. And then come back out here and stand with our watch caps on and our flannel shirts. It's always grungy here. Uh... It's very exciting to be back in Seattle. I haven't been back and played in Seattle for a while on my own. I've been here with the boys a few times, but I've been, uh, I had to play Bellevue over the last few years. And um, I know precisely how you feel. I, I had to eat at Maggiano's and P.F. Chang's. There was a Vietnamese down the street in a strip mall. I would leave my mall and go to an adjoining strip mall. I was here in the snow once in Bellevue. I was here for a Christmas parade in Bellevue, which was the greatest display of white privilege I think I've ever seen in my life. It was 17 people watching this elaborate billion-dollar parade for a bunch of people who work for Microsoft. And I was like, wow, we really aren't going to make it. I think parades are supposed to lift your spirits and make you feel imbued with a hopeful sense for the future that there's going to be a purple door opening up and we're all going to step through together arm in arm, linking elbows and equality. And that parade only made me think, oh my God, how much of those people getting that have to dress up as elves? (laughs) Not as much as the people who are watching bored with their children wearing purple. What is about white people towns where everyone has to wear turquoise and purple and wear athletic clothes all the time to prove that they have leisure time? Why would you wear athletic clothes if you weren't athleticizing? What do they call it when you, you know, you know, yeah, exercise. Thank you, lady. By the way, I'd like to point out to the people listening out there in Proopcast land in Bulgaria and uh, Chad and whatnot and those countries, uh, one person out of the over 200 people in this audience knew the word for exercise. Now, if I said, how much do you have to bend a spoon before you put the fucking junk in there and light it up? I'd have had 17 people stand up and go, you don't have to bend it. When you're chopping a rail on the hood of your Tahoe, how much meth is polite for the first bump? These are Seattle questions. When you're getting a cock piercing, how near the end should you go? I'm thinking of getting Mayan plugs so that when I'm 80, my earlobes will hang down to my shoulders and shit. (laughs) So I was in Bellevue 
And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it bears fucking repeating. I'm walking across the one vacant lot in Bellevue to go to the, uh, to the Nordstrom, I think. And uh, I, I went from the, my hotel, and there was like a, a very sad bus stop, and it was kind of pissy, drichy, as the Scottish would say, right? It was drich, and, uh, which means just a muddy rain, like a not, not an unceasing torrent. It's not a monsoon. It's not a Tom Robbins, you know, uh, a, a fabulous description of uh, a biblical, you know, un- rain, but rather just sort of the hideous mist that makes wearing glasses the worst fucking thing in the world. <laughs> That this is I, I would I was in Vancouver and I'm coming back to Bellevue, but I was in Vancouver, which is much like Seattle, but you know they move a little slower. And um, I love Canadians because you're always the fastest one there. No matter, no matter what's happening in Canada, you're on fire. There's no sense of urgency. I don't know what happened to Canada. Why Canada just went? You know what? We got mountains. Fuck it. I was in Vancouver, and um, they go, come up and live here, you know, Orange 45's out there, you know, you've got the sweet potato stall, and, you know, come, come with us. And, and I was like, I would, but I can't walk outside for more than 30 seconds without not being able to see anything <laughs> because of the steady downpour. And when I was there, it had rained like 18 days in a row, and everyone was like, <clears throat> even Canadians, they were... <clears throat> So, uh, going back to Bellevue, I'm walking across, and I've got my brawly, right? I'm very kicky, kicky little raincoat, you know. <laughs> and my shit fucking $5 brawly that I bought at the, you know, the kind that you open them, and they don't really open, and then you open it one time, and it shoots off into the stratosphere <laughs> in a kind of a Buster Keaton, Chester Conklin silent movie, and you're standing, and you have to do a take, and the, and then you go over and pick it up and pathetically try to put it back in because you're a man, because you're a man, and you can fix it, but you can't because it's made of shit by Bolivian blind children who toil endlessly under their master's whip, which has been soaked in brine, a cat of nine tails that the lash rips the flesh off their back because they're not making umbrellas fast enough, that umbrella. And it costs $6, and you were like, really, six? I'll give you three. It was one of those. From a bucket, maybe, from a bucket from a bucket, one of those mayonnaise buckets that people stand with umbrellas in. You're like, umbrellas, $6. And you're like, really? You jacked it up because it's raining. <laughs> yeah, supply and demand. So, I'm not Thomas Malthus, but this won't end well. So I've got my shit umbrella. And of course, a shit umbrella in the North, any umbrella in the Northwest outside of a tent or a yurt or a rolling Mongolian affair. The Mongolians conducted their entire lives in enormous tents which were brilliantly and mathematically folded up and put on carts and then opened quite easily and with t- guy wires they were able to fucking fuck, put the fucker up, put a fire in the middle and it had a hole in the top of the tent where they cooked everything. Now mind you, they drink curdles, horse's milk and blood and shit like that. So the cuisine is not oat. You know what I mean? It's not Seattle. No one's like, oh, have you had the pan cow encrusted, you know, uh, blue eye? Because um, it's, it's running this time of year. We only use uh, naturally sourced salmon that took their own lives on the way to the... Uh, to returning to the spawning ground. This one survived by a sack of gelatinous eggs and uh, a couple of spry. And his name was Gilbert. I've come on woefully unloaded. Can I have another vodka-flavored vodka drink if anyone works here or... Thank you. 
And uh, so I'm walking across this vacant lot. I've got my shit umbrella out. And what I meant to say was, like, wind blows out you sideways here. There's that whole defying physics, Jack Frost is mad, precipitation has no bearing on it. Precipitation usually means moisture coming from a cloud to the ground. Not here, not in the Northwest. Precipitation comes down, and then it kind of does whatever it wants for a while. It has kind of a freak out and a Jimi Hendrix thing, and whoa, there must be some kind of way out of here. And it's like, rain is looking for an exit here and then eventually it hits the ground after it puts mud all over your glasses and, and your shoe shine that you oh Jesus fucking Christ thank you Shana that's Shana Shana runs the place she's super awesome uh, she didn't mind me uh, I, you know I, in the dressing room I put chocolate sauce on and I have foam antlers and you know there's a whole ritual I go through and she was so nice about holding the camera for me and so I'm walking through the vacant lot with my crap umbrella and it's detracting no moisture is being deflected it's all going onto my face and a goth girl I can see because when you walk across a vacant lot, it's like a western. Whoever's coming from the other side of the vacant lot takes a fucking Sergio Leone amount of time to get to you. So you're able to fill in music while they're walking to you. Right. Ah! What's that part? That part's really weird. What are they saying? That part's really freaky. And Eli Wallach, who's the greatest of all time. Eli Wallach passed away, uh, is in the stars for about a year or so. He lived to be 95. He didn't make a movie until he was 40. And he plays Mexicans, uh, Asians, uh, every nationality in a thousand different movies, Russians. And he always does the same accent no matter what he's doing. And it's fantastic. He's a Jewish guy from New York. So when he's a Mexican, he goes, hey, Blondie, Blondie. And my favorite line, of course, in movie history, uh, uh, the guy has a gun and he's going to shoot him and he's in the bathtub and he pulls a gun out of the bathtub and shoots the guy and goes, if you are going to shoot, shoot like that. And it's just like, really? No Mexican person actually speaks with that accent. And then in Lord Jim, he's a, an Asian warlord, and they've given him buck teeth, so he's kind of Bugs Bunny-ish. And he goes, oh, Lord Jim! And you're like, that's the same voice you did in... Down with General Grant! So here she comes across the lot, like Gary Cooper, right? <laughs> Do not forsake me, oh, my darling... On this uh, wedding day, right? A clock's going off. Sharon Stone's on my dick, right? I got Russell Crowe, right? The whole enchilada. I can see her coming toward me, and it's mano y wumano. I've got my brawly up like a big sissy. She's wearing, as she gets closer, it is revealed through the mist, that she's wearing gum bits and a, a plaid skirt, and a, a series of colorful, you know, hair things and a nose ring and whatnot. And she's disquieted by living in Bellevue. <laughs> As anyone might be. However, she's outwardly manifesting it by her dress, which is saying to the people of Bellevue, no, I'm not going to wear a button-down shirt and dockers with a phone on it. <laughs> because I'm not a corporate fucking knave, Okay who sucks at Microsoft's enormous flashing phallus. You can so OD on Microsoft in a fucking New York second in Bellevue, in a Bellevue minute, which means you're going to go buy an awful furniture store. 
and go like, do white people really put this in their summer home? And the answer is yes. And you know they're made of stealing. I mean, that's what you know about Bellevue. You know that their boat needs work and that they're made of stealing. So we approach one another. Uh, I, of course, at the insouciance that I'm almost uh, all the way around Squinamish County renowned for. And uh, she with her, uh, her determined grimness. And as she gets to me and sees me holding the umbrella and the, f- you know, the febrile, futile mist, she goes, it's not raining. <laughs> when I wish to source meteorological reports, one of the primary sources I like to go to is um, angry goth people in Bellevue, Washington. <laughs> For those of you listening in Honduras, Bellevue is a small white principality across a bridge from Seattle. No one in this room crosses that bridge willingly. Microsoft World Headquarters are there, so it's a full employment economy. You do not see homeless people in Bellevue. And in Seattle, you see little else. And that's who's here tonight. So, I'm like, yeah. And of course, I was deflated. I closed the umbrella in shame and then went, fuck, I have to open it again and opened it again. I didn't cast a glance back because I was writing a book in my head. (laughs) If you look back, that's cheating, right? If you don't cast a glance back, you can say in your head, he strode manfully forward, never casting a glance back. (laughs) But not a week has gone by in his visits to the Northwest that he didn't think of that angry goth girl (laughs) and her meteorological admonition. In Scotland, you can get a cab in the rain because they refuse to believe it's raining. Any other town in the world, it starts to rain like New York City, two drops of rainfall, no fucking cabs at all. Never, never not a cab, not one. San Francisco, no, fuck no. Scotland, it'll be pissing. And you're like, cab, and and you're like, anybody? And they're like, no, it's not, it's not, They're light on the consonants. Well, they're... They're heavy on the consonants, but they're light on the endings. I've received so many lovely gifts here. This is from Lynn, who I, uh, her, I met her brother, was it? Your brother who came from Alaska last time? Nicole. I'm going to call her Lynn. <laughs> Lynn gave me that one, Nicole. Uh, and she had a fish, and she said, what should I name my fish? And what kind of fish is it? It's a betta fish, B-E-T-T-A. Do you say beta? Betta? And she said, what should I name my fish? And I said, Ruth Betta Ginsburg. And so she did. Ruth Betta Ginsburg, by the way, didn't attend the State of the Union address. And she has a trainer. Yeah, that's called exercise. No one in here knows about it. She does planks and push-ups. And she's uh, close to 245 years old. I have a constitution here, and her name is in the back of it. It should be. Uh, Fudge. Purple hay. I said that I don't like the taste of lavender. I was talking about France in a previous episode. And Lynn, as I like to call her, Nicole, 
has remembered that I don't like lavender and bought me some lavender fudge. Thank you for that. Oh, Washington contrarian. Purple haze lavender soap. Yeah, that's, I'm going to use that right after the show on my below the equator area. Lavender milk chocolate. Now you're pissing me off. Okay, lady. Ooh, a bag of Coke. Fuck, there's almost enough for everyone. Oh, it's tea. It's not really, it's not fake tea, it's Coke, right? It's tea. Chamomile, raspberry leaf, mint, lavender, three bags per package. Yes, sir, yes, sir. Have I any tea? Purple haze, relaxing lavender tea. If there's one song that's not relaxing, I adore Jimi Hendrix beyond all measure. And I'll say this about Jimi Hendrix. The thing that I love the most about Kurt Cobain, who swirled in the stars 20 years ago last week, is that I felt like Nirvana had a real Hendrixy vibe. Like, they were heavy. Like, there was a word we used to use in the old days, and it was heavy. Oh, thank you. Uh, and um, when you listen to Hendrix, it's still... Will you, do you have Purple Haze, uh, Jules? Yeah. You might want to spin that while I vamp. Uh, and I, I don't find the song Purple Haze relaxing. I find it a psychedelic journey into a shattered world where acid is dominating your mind and you feel like every moment is coming at you like a thousand, zillion, billion, jillion fractals uh, coalescing in a, a, an emerald world that's exploding uh, in a thousand different ways. Um, I don't really think, mm, Purple Haze. I'm going to have some Purple Haze tea. Oh, shit. <laughs> Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Wow, no, no. No? It's on there. Really loud. Right? Air drum. That is so relaxing. I so want to take a bath and drink a glass of Purple Haze tea. How old would he be, like 70? Notice how I air guitar left-handed. Uh, thank you. You can fade that down a little there, Jules. Uh, no one's more badass. I mean, you know, that's the thing about rock. It's so white. <laughs> and then you think about Little Richard and Jimi Hendrix and Prince and James Brown, and you're like, mm -hmm. <laughs> really? Journey? <laughs> you know what song I heard on Classic Rock today? And by the way, Portland, Seattle corridor. <laughs> Paucity of fucking R&B stations. The trip between Portland and Seattle is largely dominated by the music of my high school. I fucking heard Baba O'Reilly. 
Like I haven't heard it before. And then I heard this one, and I actually listened to it for a while. And I'm really leaving myself open here. I want you to know that I've never been this vulnerable on stage. <laughs> Talking about how much I'm glad that my dad's dead is not nearly as vulnerable as what I'm about to tell you. And it's a song, and it goes like this. There must be some misunderstanding. Woo! Must be some kind of mistake. Woo! I waited in the rain for hours. You were late. Um, Wimp Rock at its fucking finest. I fucking sang as loud as I could to that shit. And then I guess I got a new wavy, like, jack-type station, and they played Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And that song is the fucking best song of all time. If you want to do yourself a favor, go on YouTube and look up Cindy Lauper at the Brazilian airport. She's in Sao Paulo or somewhere, and she's at an airport, and everyone's delayed. The flight's delayed, and there's 250 people sitting in a waiting room, and they're making the announcement on the mic, the flight will be delayed, blah, blah, blah. And Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper's on the flight, gets up on the mic and goes, the phone rings in the middle of the night. And the whole fucking place explodes. And everyone sings it for five minutes. No music, nothing. Just them singing it. And everyone takes the chorus. Girls just want to have... Bum, 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 right? It's the fucking greatest video you've ever seen in your life. And it makes me love Cindy Lauper even more than I already love Cindy Lauper. The fact that she just got up. We're like, fuck this plane's late. Fuck it. I'm doing this. It's, her voice is high and she's kept it she's kept it I'm guessing no smoking no drinking for Cindy Lauper she, she looks fantastic and she can still hit the notes they just wanna have fun it's really good that was when I was uh, young so I wore a lot of O-rings and if this was 1985, my coat would be a lot bigger. <laughs> my hair would be much the same, sadly. <laughs> and I ran, I ran so far away. I just ran, I ran all night and day. Couldn't run um, But uh, loads of O-rings and brooches. And necklaces and sh- Oh, yeah. That was the 80s. Fuck you. Fuck you. Don't laugh at me. You have no identity in this generation. I love young people, but wow. No fucking identity. We had an identity. But I didn't, I, as I said, I didn't wear jellies. Uh, to Proopsie. This is Love Rosie and the Bloatist Circus Peanut. These are Circus Peanuts. They're the artificially flavored orange ones that are bizarre sugar confections. Thank you for those. I haven't had one in ages. I haven't had one since I've had the necklace that you wear that's uh, like peach and orange. And then when you eat it, it makes your mouth all like a baboon's ass and then it drops down and makes your neck like you've just had a visit from Christopher Lee or whatever. What the fuck was that candy all about? Oh, golly, what's in here? I asked him, oh, shit, what is it? Oh, it's coffee. Is it? I'm the only person in the world who's so lame that I shook it to see if it was coffee. Like coffee's going to go, I'm coffee. Yo, cafe. 
Cafe Aroma Real. Wow. Peso Neto. 350 grams. From, from the Mayan Riviera. Wow. What was your name who gave me this? Okay. Oh, cool. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Where'd that goddamn button go? There it is. Um, Danielle, is it? Whoa. Uh, Danielle, did you give me this button and this pen? Kaylee. Oh, hey, Kaylee. Your name's written right in the front. Sorry, Kaylee. Uh, Lynn. Um, she gave me a pen that says, fantastically, smash the patriarchy on it. That can't happen soon enough. I mean, there's so many guys that are like, so, Greg, you're like a traitor and shit? Like, really? Fuck you. I'm not a traitor. I just think it's time. Hasn't it been time for, like, the last two and a half thousand years? We're talking about smashing a paradigm that's given us Orange 45. We have an Oompa Loompa oligarch because the patriarchy exists. If you can't get down with that, then I don't know how to explain it to you for the billionth goddamn time. But I have guys argue with it me every week, and I know I put a preposition in the wrong part of the sentence. <laughs> There's a little kitty cat, and it says feminist on it, and it's by Bunny D. And Bunny D is an artist named Daniel something, Danielle Gundry Manji. Oh, look at her. And she's at, uh, at, oh, she has an Etsy shop. Anyway, her name is Bunny D, and, she's, uh, and that's how you can find her on Instagram or Etsy. Uh, and it's a really lovely pen, and I'm going to wear it. Not tonight, not in this suit, but another time in another suit. And thank you for the smash, the patriarchy pen. I'm going to give it to Jennifer and hope that she doesn't stick it in my fucking eye. <laughs> it depends on what mood, you know. If I catch her in a good mood, she's going to be, oh, I love it. If I'm fucking her off and being a juvenile idiot, she's going to be like, ah, like that. <laughs> No, she's never stabbed me in the eye. Um, what's this? Someone's talking. Oh, this is the Purple Haze Lavender Farm. This is a pamphlet that goes with the Purple Haze Lavender Farm? We had left that. Oh, my God. There's a woman on the cover, and then she's married, getting married on the second page. The same woman that appears. Weddings. Have your wedding amidst fields of lavender. Purple Haze Lavender Farm is available for weddings and receptions from June through August. Isn't that only three months? Oh, right, because the rest of the time you'll be in mud in your white fucking gown with rain pissing down on you and your groom ruining his fucking spiky haircut and making your tattoos run. I love, I love uh, 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 statements of purpose. We are deeply committed to preserving the agricultural heritage of the Dungeness Valley. We believe our farm should celebrate all that the acreage can provide. A sustainable... <sighs> Great moments in white people history. Today, a white person opened a lavender farm. In somewhere. Sequim. Sakim? 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 I can't hear if you all yell at once. Squim. Okay. Squim. Last night I was in, uh, oh, I shouldn't say this, a week ago I was in Portland and 
There's a town in Oregon called A-L-O-H-A, right? Aloha? No. Aloha. Aloha. And you people pronounce S-E-Q-I-M, which is clearly Sakim, as Squim. Because you have no respect for the people that lived here before you. You've anglicized their fucking Indian names. I love it. And, by the way, in case you can't get out to the farm in the Dungeness Valley, there's a downtown Sakim store. Squim, squim. What did I say, Sakim? I've made him a dictator of Korea. Uh, who, ga- who gave me the Wheaties? Matt. Matt? Thank you, Matt. Um, he goes, there's nothing more Seattle than a box of Ken Griffey Jr. Honey Frosted Wheaties. Ken Griffey Jr. was one of the most outstanding ballplayers that ever played for the Seattle Mariners. During their years of futility, Ken Griffey was a beacon of light. Um, when Negroes were allowed to play ball, Seattle was one of the first cities that said, sure, what the fuck? We probably won't win a World Series ever, so we might as well let everyone play. And let's have the shittiest dome ever, and then replace it with a really cool place. Um, uh, how, are these recent? Uh, can I eat these honey-frosted Wheaties? Because Ken hasn't played for the Seattle Mariners. As I recall, he had a seven or eight year sojourn with the Cincinnati Reds after Seattle. How old is this box of Wheaties? Is what I'm asking. I guess I could look at the sell-by date. Let's just have a look. Better, better if used by. Talk about fucking fuck you, FDA. There is going to be no FDA, you realize, in like two weeks. Better, better if used by 17 August 1997. How well I remember 1995, you guys. 1995. Randy Johnson did not back up Dan Wilson when Mattingly had that hit. Oh, yeah. Fuck you. I know my Mariners history. I saw Alvin Davis play, bitches. I was at uh, uh, Jeff Leonard's first game with the Mariners and Ken Griffey. uh, What? Hack, yeah. We had traded him from the Giants, and we got Mike Jackson, which was awesome. But uh, uh, Ken Griffey, I was at Carlton Fisk's last game at the Old Kingdom, and um, Black Jack McDowell pitched for the Sox that day. And Ken Griffey wore high-top sneakers untied (laughs) on the field when he hit, and he ran up the center field, that crap cyclone fence they had out in center. Ken Griffey ran up the cyclone fence and caught a ball over the wall and came back down and went like... With his shoes untied. And he stole second with his shoes untied. I was never so impressed with the player. Um, He's immortal. You've given me a 20-year-old box of cereal. I remember his dad is how old I am. And I saw them play together, too. His dad was uh, played for the Cincinnati Reds and was an outstanding player. Thank you so much for this. Uh, Jennifer's going to be so thrilled. That I bring a 20-year-old box of cereal home. 
she's gonna go like, that goes in the garage. <laughs> There's no more room in the garage. Uh, this was given to me by um, it's uh, Michael Chabon, who's a wonderful writer. You wrote your name in here in the beginning, I thought. No, no, Lynn gave that to you. Oh, Lynn. <laughs> Not Nicole? <laughs> the Long Ships. Uh, and I, I can't wait to read it. It looks really good. Uh, oh, my God. I hadn't even looked inside here. You know, this is so timely. It's a postcard of Richard M. Nixon. <laughs> Richard M. Nixon was president briefly from the late 60s to the early 70s. Um, he was shot uh, by the FBI uh, at a terrible, terrible shootout uh, at Patty Hearst's house. It was really a remarkable moment in executive history. Richard M. Nixon was the first president shot by security forces for the safety of the country. Richard Nixon uh, moved to San Clemente, which is outside of L.A. If you drive south from L.A. Um, and drive, turn left at 1975, <laughs> there's San Clemente. My wife and I, on the day after the election, were driving back from a gig in Costa Mesa, and we stopped at a, a, a bit... There's an insane restaurant in San Clemente. Mexican food is the best in the world. But it was two days after the election, and every white male... And there were only white males... Every white male in this place was wearing a baseball cap. And all I could think of was every single person in this room. So, <laughs> my enjoyment was a little bit quelled. But Richard Nixon moved to San Clemente in his, uh, when he was exiled. He's the, he's the most Roman of all of our presidents because he had hubris. He uh, denied, uh, much like Orange 45 is doing now, he covered up, and the cover-up was worse than the crime. And then he was brought down by his own party, by the way, in Congress, and Barbara Jordan, who we're going to get to in a second here. Uh, and uh, then when he, he was forced to resign, and the 25th Amendment was invoked, uh, uh, Article 4, of which I have here. And um, imagine the excitement, boys and girls. The Constitution and Barbara Jordan? The, this might be the fourth best podcast I've ever been to. We were hoping My Favorite Murder was on tonight. We walked into the wrong thing. So, when he was exiled, he went back to San Clemente where he lived, which, by the way, is a beautiful beach town in Southern California. There's nothing wrong with San Clemente at all. And the most famous picture of Richard Nixon in exile is, um, and he really was exiled in his own country. No one heard from him. And then David Frost did the interviews with him, and that was the first time we'd heard from him in a while. The Nixon Museum, by the way, if you ever get a chance, is the best museum in the world. Before he died, he videotaped a bunch of answers. And there's a, as, as far as I recall, I haven't been there in 100 years. You could go into a room and press a button and call up his different answers. Like if you wanted to ask, what was Watergate about? You push a button and Nixon would come on screen and go, well, there was a lot of problems with Watergate. And then he talks to you from beyond the grave, dead. And it's fantastic. And if you think uh, uh, presidents, of, uh, if you think this president has the skeeziest manner, you didn't live through fucking Nixon. Nixon had a three-day growth of beard all the time. He had a very dark beard. He didn't have a three-day growth, but it, it was always dark. Nixon, Nixon talked like this. Let me, let me be very clear about that. Let me, let me, and he would say things like, fantastically, let me say this about that. <laughs> and Dan Rather, who's still alive, would get up and go, President Nixon, President Nixon, President Nixon, President Nixon, President Nixon, at every scrum. 
at every press scrum, right? He would yell at him until finally next to him would go, Yes, Dan. How long is the war in Vietnam going to continue? Dan, that's a very complicated question. And he shook his head when he spoke. Anyway, when they exiled him, he went to San Clemente. And there's a famous picture of him walking on the beach in his cufflinks and black suit and black formal shoes. And he's alone on the beach in a suit like this. Sometimes there's justice. I'm hoping to see the Kremlin-controlled carrot now, I wasn't a big fan of the Bastille. I thought the Bastille was unjust. But, you know, they had those cages they used to hang people in. Couldn't we just for a week? Or, or even better, Puritan stocks. People would come by and piss on you and throw food at you and shit. Dogs would piss on you and whatnot. I'm not saying we should. That's cruel. I'm just letting my imagination wander a little bit in front of a group of people that I believe are under the influence of purple haze, lavender tea. Uh, Tom Robbins uh, is from South Carolina and is a genius. And he lives, lived in Seattle for ages and ages. Very good friends with, uh, Jennifer told me tonight, Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, the father of psychedelia, uh, Robert Altman and Alan Rudolph. Gabriel gave me this book, and it's called Tibetan Peach Pie. I've never read it. Let's just see if we can find a... Somebody say... Yeah. Um, Jones looked like Dylan Thomas with a receding hairline and an exceeding waistline. A big brooding hulk. He would puff his jowls malevolently and budge his hyperthyroid eyes until he resembled a hippopotamus rising from the ooze. Then unfold his meaty lips to emit one of those nervous little nearly silent giggles with which certain jazz drummers vent their ecstasy at the terminus of an especially complicated riff. <laughs> I told you it was good. Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you for that, Gabriel. Uh, oh, North Carolina. I said South Carolina. He, went, he grew up in Virginia. Uh, let's just hear at the very end. Robbins lives with his wife, Alexa, and their dog, Bleeny Tomato Titanium. <laughs> in Washington State. Uh, I haven't read this, but I'll recommend it. But I will also recommend Another Roadside Attraction, if you've never not read that one. Uh, it has the, one of the greatest plots of any book. I'm not going to spoil any of it. I will tell you this. There's a rock band in it, and they're called Tribal Meat. And that's all I want to say. Um, the show's over. Thank you very much for coming out. That's all the time we have. It's gone a little longer than I thought it would, as usual. Hey, kittens. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. You can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. 
ZipRecruiter's handy website shows trending career fields, cities, and searches. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. Find out today why ZipRecruiter's been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, The New York Times, TechCrunch, and CBS. And why it's been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my kittens can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash smart. I thank you, and the smartest man in the world thanks you. Where are we going? I wonder. Uh, we'll be at, oh, now it'll be already over. No, it won't, by then, in any case. Uh, we'll be in Paris on the 9th of March at Shakespeare and Company. Uh, come and visit us there. I know a lot of you are going to fly out this weekend. Um, <laughs> then we'll be at the Soho Theater in London for our English chums. We'll be in Paris for our Parisian chums, or the Parisians that speak English. Um, I used to do a comedy club, uh, several different comedy clubs in Paris, and Americans are hilariously parochial and provincial, and Americans never let you down. And this is how, because Americans will go, so you, you were in Paris, huh? Paris, London? I'm not kidding. That's one question I've had. And my answer is yes, the Twin Cities. And uh, connected by that land bridge of cheese, it starts as Stilton and turns into Camembert. And the other question is, when you do that stand-up in Paris, do they understand you? And it's like, what Parisian who doesn't speak English is going to come to an English-language comedy show? Let me put it this way. If a French language comedy show was happening here tonight, how many of you would have gone, fuck it, let's go anyway? <laughs> so yes, they do understand. It's Canadians, it's Scottish people, it's Americans, it's English people, it's everyone who's, it's Anglophones, that's who goes. And Shakespeare and Company is a sensational store. It's like Elliott Bay or Powell's or whatever. It's that locus of uh, the uh, English uh, language literary scene in Paris. They've opened a cafe. And this is what they told us when we were there in December. We did a podcast with Jennifer and um, uh, the people from Shakespeare and Company, Adam and, uh, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. Fuck it, edit this part out. And um, <laughs> Kirsten. Kirsten. And anyway, we were upstairs and uh, 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 they said, French people really didn't come to the store. You know, they came and they'd look around and they all speak English and they read English so they could look at the books and whatnot. But they opened a cafe finally last year. Shakespeare Company has been open for 50 years. They opened a cafe and now French people came so they could sit outside and smoke and drink coffee. And then they're like, oh, let's go inside. You told us now French people come inside and are like, oh, really? And you think, yeah, you needed to open a coffee shop 50 years ago. That was the problem. You weren't giving Parisians a chance to go there. You were saying it was an English language bookstore, which they were like, <laughs> give me a place to smoke and drink coffee and bitch about the fact that there's an English language bookstore here, and then I will fucking go. Then we're in Glasgow uh, doing stand-up on the 15th of March and a vodcast on the 16th of March at Cotiers at the Glasgow International Comedy Festival, which is great fun. Um, uh, afterward, I always go uh, to a chip shop and get fish and chips and then go back to my room and have an orgy with them. <laughs> I don't drink soda pop as a rule. But not really, it's not a rule, it's a guideline. But I don't usually drink soda pop. But in Scotland, really? 
What else are you going to do? And they have a, a drink called Iron Brew there that tastes like if you put a children's aspirin in a bottle of fizzy water. And they're like, oh, fucking for strength. And you're like, this is like a vitamin that I don't want to take. So we'll be there. Then we'll be in San Jose at the 24th through the 26th doing the podcast on the 24th. Then in Chicago at Lincoln Hall on the 29th. And on the 30th for my NPR friends, we'll be doing Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. For, yeah. I knew there was people driving Priuses out there. Who's got a Volvo? You do. We were going to buy the Celtic Woman video, but, you know, we just don't watch DVDs that much anymore. We're really on Amazon or, you know, Netflix a lot of the time now. Sintra made the most amazing stir-fry last night. That our children, Hunter and Tyler, oh my God. They're number three in their class. Fucking bitches. We'll be in Chicago. And then, uh, uh, where am I staying in Chicago? Hmm, maybe this isn't a question I should ask myself while the show's underway. I like to go out after. Um, on the 10th uh, of April, we'll be at Bar Lubitsch in Hollywood. Uh, that's free to attend, so you guys fucking missed out on that one. Uh, April 12th, we'll be at the Cine Family doing the Greg Poops Film Club once again with Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee, which is a sensational picture, and you owe it to yourself to see it. Uh, the 24th of uh, April, we'll be at Shakespeare's Globe uh, in London, again with the Comedy Store Players uh, performing improv there. Also, um, on the uh, Wednesday preceding, I believe, we'll be with the Comedy Store Players at the Comedy Store. That's the English cast of Whose Lawn Is It Anyway? Uh, Richard Vance, Andy Smart, Josie Lawrence, Lee Simpson, Neil Malarkey. Uh, who the fuck am I forgetting? I'm forgetting someone. God damn it. Uh... Uh, Paul Merton um, and like that and then uh, we'll be at the Bell House in Brooklyn on the 26th I'm on the road with Who's Live anyway we're going to be in uh, Anna Cortez or as I like to call it Anal Cortez at the end of the month uh, at the Swinomish Casino uh, with Joel Murray, uh, Jeff D. Davis and Ryan Stiles uh, and then, then we'll be on the road in April the 5th through the 8th in Columbus Akron, Indy and Louisville go to Who's Live anyway and you can find us there in our fabulous antics as we travel the country ceaselessly uh, and our alcoholism unabated now uh, uh, let's see here. Carol Mosley Brown um, was one of the was the first woman of color elected to the Senate. She's still a senator, as I, I think. Mm. No. A in any case, uh, she said this. Uh, magical. I didn't want to hit you guys with like a million. Uh, obviously, uh, we're living in a world now where there's that moment where you know you wake up in the morning and then there's um, ten to fifteen seconds where you're not remembering what's going on. <laughs> There's that beautiful blankness that happens. There's a, a, an awesome pink period where you wake up and you're like, fuck, yeah, right, yeah. And then you go, oh, shit. Um, but I, I would like every moment to be a little more like that. Uh, uh, remember, um, he, he's, he's flailing right now. Uh, and uh, in any case, uh, this is what Carol Mosley Brown said. Magic lies in challenging what seems impossible. And that, we have to remember that. If nothing else... They possess no magic, no sense of humor, uh, 
No sense of art, no sense of poetry, no sense of lyricism, and no magic. No one in their inaugural dress uh, uh, talks about uh, tombstones and graveyards and desolate countrysides and shit like that. No one does that has any sense of poetry in their soul. You may remember Bill Clinton had Maya Angelou uh, read his opening poem. John F. Kennedy had Robert Frost read a poem. Um, uh, Orange 45 came out and went, desolate graveyards. And you're like, no. Fuck you. Fuck you and your desolate graveyards. Uh, Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan was a congressperson from Texas. And in 1976 gave a keynote uh, address at the uh, Democratic National Convention that was sensational. You can watch it on, uh, on, on the computer. And she thought that James Earl Carter was going to make her attorney general. And, and I think she was kind of counting on it. And, of course, he didn't. He made a man attorney general. Uh, but he's made up for it since then. But Barbara Jordan is an extraordinary individual and fought as hard as any individual. Uh, because it's Women's History Month, and last month was Black History Month, and last month was the most sensationally egregious Black History Month in the history of Black History Months. Um, w- uh, everything from uh, uh, Frederick Douglass walking the earth again to Kellyanne Conway sitting on her feet on a couch while the presidents of 46 black colleges were there while Orange 45 told them lies. It was an egregious month. Everything to moonlight not getting its due. I mean, my God. And then I still have white guys say to me, well, you can't say, you can't say they're all right. Because that's what they say. That's what it sounds like to me. There's two things I never want to hear from anyone who supports this dominant paradigm that's going on now. You can't say everyone's racist who supports it. And the other thing is I don't want to hear. And the other thing is, what's your proof for that? I don't need proof because I speak in truth. I speak in facts and shit. I only attribute things. I give my opinion too, but when I'm telling you a fact, I tell you a fact that I've cited, that I've vetted, that I've chased down, that Jennifer's chased down, that we've researched. I don't say things like President Obama wiretapped me because I feel like it. That's making shit up that you heard from a crazy person and you're a crazy person too. And I don't mean that, as I always say, I don't mean to diminish mental illness. But clearly, we've reached the point now where we have to all agree that it's full tilt boogie. No woman and no person of color would be allowed to act this way if they were in the same position. Barack Obama did not act this way. Hillary Rodham Clinton would not act this way if she was in charge. She would not act this way. She wouldn't be tweeting from the toilet at four in the morning. You know it's true. Girl, you know it's true. I love you. They weren't that bad. They got a bad knock. I felt terrible for Millie Vanilli. How many white people had lip-synced their records over the years? And one fucking black guy does it, and all of a sudden it's a crime and shit? Fuck you. They were good-looking. Fuck it. Really? We let Kid Rock have a career? And we're dissing Millie Vanilli? Seriously. Kid Rock's an egregious blight on mankind. Gross. Gross. I was playing in Nashville a couple years ago. 
And the owners of the club were very nice. And um, uh, it was Saturday night, and they came by and they said hi to me before the show. And the owner says to me, we're not coming to your show tonight because we're going to the Kid Rock concert. <laughs> and I was like, oh, but you're not wearing a Schwanzdicker. Shouldn't you have a spiked helmet and a Confederate flag? Shouldn't you have a It's a White Thing t-shirt on? And up jumped the boogie. I missed the dwarf, I'll tell you that. Really, that was harsh? The little person. Kid Rock had a little person in his retinue. Why do you know so much about Kid Rock is a, another question that needs to be. Because any shitty white artist that fucking sucks stops being whatever genre they were being. He was ostensibly hip hop and became a country star because country accepts all white supremacists. They do. I'm sorry. Country music has some giant artists. There's no question of that. Uh, uh, you know, there's Tammy Wynette and Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard and, you know, Hank Williams and, and, and Patsy Cline, who passed away uh, some 60-something years ago tonight and whatnot. Patsy Cline is enormous. There, uh, yes, there are great country stars. But, you know, come on. It's white people music for white people. So if you're a white supremacist, they're like, nah, it's okay. <laughs> Uneasy laughter from the Seattle crowd. Evidently, a lot of you grew up in fucking Aberdeen and Slater Kenny. Apparently, some of you grew up in George and Yakima. Ellensburg, anybody? Fuck you, I know where you're from. She don't lie, she don't lie, she don't lie. Spokane. You want to know where I saw a fucking Orange 45 sticker on a truck? Yeah. Spokane. Driving in last year when I did a gig, man. And, and hey, it's all about that. What am I going to tell you? Uh, Barbara Jordan said, if you're dissatisfied with the way things are, then you have got to resolve to change them. Um, yeah, it's time to work. It's all about that. Maya Angelou. Uh, if you don't know who Maya Angelou is, you ought to. Um, she was six feet tall. She'd had every job in the world. She was a poetess. She was a priestess. Uh, 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 um, I was uh, uh, reprimanded and, uh, um, and remonstrated with. Uh, she was a poet. I used the word, I believe, poetess. And someone wrote me and said that's quite sexist, and I agree. She was a poet. Uh, she was a priestess. And she was uh, an advocate and uh, everything on earth. And uh, Maya Angelou wrote this. And um, it's called Still I Rise. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still... 
I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed head and lured eyes. Shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard. Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness. But still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling I bear in the tide, leaving behind nights of terror and fear I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear I rise bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave I am the dream and the hope of the slave I rise I rise I rise yeah It's been this bad in this country a bunch of times before. We just haven't felt it before. Because a lot of us are white and privileged. A lot of us are men and privileged. A lot of us are whatever and privileged. Um, Now we feel it and now we understand. And now we have to move forward. Uh, This is from The Atlantic. The 1913 Women's Suffrage Parade occurred two days ago, uh, 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 nine days ago. At the beginning of March, March 3rd, less than a century ago, women in the United States were not guaranteed the right to vote. My mother, uh, who's swirling in the stars, uh, was born in 1919. uh, Yeah, I know, many of you are like, I can't do math. Um, (laughs) She was 40 when she had me. And uh, uh, she was born before women could vote, like Hillary's mother was born. Hillary always mentioned that her her mother was born in 1919. And I always thought, hmm. My mother did not live uh, to see this election, but she would have been chuffed uh, that a woman was running, and she would have voted for Hillary because she was a big-time Clinton person. And um, she would be disgusted beyond all measure now. I'm almost certain. Being a woman uh, from Mississippi who was the oldest of nine children and uh, whose parents ran a farm and whatnot and uh, rode a fucking like Model A truck across the country to Arizona in the 30s with the dog and everything... Um, I know, I know. It's getting fucking Woody Guthrie on your ass now. (laughs) Women are strong because they have to be. Men do what they want to do. Sometimes men are dutiful and kind. Sometimes men are awesome. And sometimes men adhere to what they should adhere to. A lot of times men are a fucking drag. (laughs) And you see them a lot. In the government, like this particular government, which is full of them, The Congress, the Senate, the Cabinet, the Republican administration. Let's call it what it is. It's a Republican administration full of men, full of icky, ugly white men. Almost to a person, none of them are even mildly pleasing to look at. And that's putting it. It's like Moss Eisley Spaceport. A hive of scum and villainy. A wretched hive of scum and villainy. People come up to you when you're at the congressional lunchroom and go, I'm wanted for the death penalty. I'm Chuck Pettit. I'll be careful. You'll be dead. 
Look at the white men in the cabinet. Look at the white men in the Congress. They have eyes in the middle of their heads. They have eyes on stalks. They have no chins. They're misshapen. Their penises are clearly disappointing and curved. It's small and flaccid and horrible and require Viagra to punish the prostitutes that are supplied by the oil companies and the Russian oligarchs. They're a vile group of misshapen trolls, and that's why they're so fucking evil. Their very countenance has dictated the fucking tyranny of their souls, their black obsidian, heedless, heartless, pitiless, unempathetic fucking souls. No truck have they with women or children or any kind of uh, a, a comprehensive ocean of humanity that they seek to uplift. Snay, raw, blatant, fucking self interest is the only motivating factor that I can fucking discern. Because otherwise... They would take a moment out of their hideous, horrible, reptilian lives that if I have any goddamn say about it, will end in a pit of fucking mesquite-grilled fucking artisanal pizza like served here at the Crocodile. Where coals will burn through a giant rubberware tub until fucking Jason Chaffetz and Paul Ryan and Mr. Nunez and Mitch McConnell will have to suck a fucking turd in fucking purgatory for their goddamn sins. This is not to be fucking brooked. Not to be fucking brooked in any goddamn way. We are humans and we're here to support each other, not cut each other off of the knees for our own shit self-interest. And what's the end game? What is the fucking end game? When you destroy the EPA and the education department and pollute the Great Lakes and stop all of the scientific surveys of the earth that are going to inform us about global warming and restrict the diplomatic corps and remove money from the State Department and up the defense budget to where it isn't at its highest by the goddamn way. That's a lie too. Reagan had it much higher. And do all of these awful things. Unleash corporations to do what they will. Unleash rich people to act how they will. Restrict women's rights to un unveil fucking untold fucking hatred against Jews and Muslims and black people and Asian people and, and every people of every stripe and every fucking caliber. What do you think good can come out of that? That's what I'd like to know at the end of the goddamn day when they're sitting there with a brandy and a Filipino hooker on their fucking lap and whatever fucking goddamn machinations they're up to. I didn't mean to get this fucking head up tonight, but goddamn it. I am fucking furious about this. The rising tide of fascism? Fuck you. Brick by brick, like Khufu's Pyramid at Giza, we will drag them up on sleds to build a fucking fortress against fascism. We will not let this stand, and it will not stand, because it's a grabastic, white supremacist, Islamophobic, homophobic, misogynistic, protoplasmic, piece of fucking ill-thought-out, non-legal bullshit. America was built on slavery and exclusion, and we know that now. 
And that's why we're able to fucking move forward on it now. It's everyone who's grasping to the past. When I watch Orange Julius Caesar roll down the steps of Air Force One with his bad hair and his hundred pounds that he's carrying overweight, all I can think of is the end, the end. Not of us, of him and a new beginning. Because... It may take some time. I would not look to the Republican Party or the Congress at any point to have anyone's interest in mind. They have the ball, and having the ball is everything. They don't care if Vladimir Putin or any other goddamn uh, genocidal dictator has the ball. People who... Now, by the way... Uh, 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 um, as I say it's going to take some time but by the way um, we need to know uh, that it's okay at this time when everything seems so chaotic that the chaos is created uh, so that we'll feel off balance we are centered because we are focused now on what we need to do and that's take everything over again step by step from the bottom fucking up and never, ever let the fucking pressure off. They are feeling it so hard right now. That's why it's this grabastic fucking basket of bullshit where there's midnight tweets and four in the morning tweets and, and, and golf course remonstrations with fucking rich people. He, he, uh, he loses his shit every two seconds. He has the temperament of a toddler. And that does not stand the test of fucking time. Say what you will about Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. They were organized. This is not organization. Chaos, misrule, and anarchy don't stand. Um, None of us wants to live in an oligarchic, plutocratic state where an autocrat dictates what we're going to do and all the wealth rises to the very top. However, we've been living in one for a good deal of time now, so we're quite familiar with it. It's just that this example of unbelievable fucking Roman rule and and would it were it Egyptian rule, at least the Egyptians could believe that their pharaoh was a god on earth. We know that we have a manifestation of one of the seven signs of the apocalypse walking amongst us. If there's four horses, he's the fifth one. (laughs) And he's the shittest one, and he runs last. And then blames everybody else because the track wasn't fast enough for him. And the stewards were against him. And his jockey wasn't good enough. I've never felt, at the same time, so hopeful and so desolate. The desolation comes with knowing that we're able to do this as a country. It was a shock, right? It shouldn't have been because Ferguson and Trayvon Martin and Sandra Bland and a million things fucking keyed us into that was what was happening. The Tea Party. All the things that happened should have keyed us in that this was going to happen. But now that we're here, the exciting part is um, two awesome things happened in the 20th century, right? One, uh, women got the vote. But two, uh, um, 
after World War One, there was a renaissance after a quarter of the men in the world uh, in Europe were uh, killed for no reason. And after World War II, um, there was a renaissance. And it's happening again. Uh, I've never seen people so connected, so motivated, so fucking focused on what's going on. Everyone seems to know what's happening now. And there's an electricity uh, that is moving everyone. Um, the amount of meetings and marches and the amount of activity uh, on the interwebs where everyone is connecting and everyone is making connections. The fact that we're all here tonight, I think, I know it's a comedy show and we have some dick jokes and we eat some 1997 honey frosted Wheaties. <laughs> Much to our peril. We're rolling the intestinal dice on that one. But we all know the other reason we're here. And it couldn't be more beautiful. I had a reason always to perform because I'm a show-off and I want my ego fed. <laughs> but I found a higher calling and I feel like uh, th that you guys have made this the church. I never intended anything like this to happen. I never intended anything. I just wanted to tell jokes in a fucking radio show that went out once a week. But you guys have made this into a church and you guys have made this into something bigger than I could have ever imagined it being. And I feel an onerous responsibility and I feel uh, uh, uplifted and so does Jennifer. And uh, I can't tell you, um, what, however this comes out, God damn it, I'm so fucking happy that we're here. And I'm so happy you came and I'm so happy that we're all on this together. And I don't just mean that in a personal, selfish way, although I do mean it in a personal, selfish way. I mean it in a collective way, and you know what I mean. If you're feeling depressed, go to a rally. If you're feeling depressed, go to a meeting. If you're feeling bummed out, do something. It will make you feel fucking better, more connected. And as Michael Jackson once said, <laughs> you are not alone. Uh, you're not alone. Everybody, we're in the majority. We always were. We always will be. We always will be. We always will be. In Nazi Germany, in communist China, whatever you want to think of, in Cambodia, in uh, the Balkans, in Syria, whatever it's, it's situation, in the Sudan, what, wherever you want to think of that's happening, uh, it's never the majority of people that want to be fascist fucking assholes who want to kill everyone. Yep. Most people want to live their lives and fucking get along with everyone else. But that has to be fought for. And it has to be fought for every goddamn day. And, um, you know, uh, it'll happen. So, moving on. Uh, and the 1913 Women's Suffrage Parade. May I have another drink, please? Less than a century ago, women in the United States were not guaranteed the right to... What, because I was thinking of my mother, and I don't often think of my mother, but that was why. Um, she was from Mississippi, and, uh, which is a, a shithole, and remains a shithole, and a hotbed of racism, and a, a real troublesome spot in the United States, like Alabama and Louisiana. Uh, Dixie is a, a really interesting place, if you've ever not gone there. Um, uh, racism in the north, like up here or where I'm from in the Bay Area, is uh, uh, laid underground and people don't admit to being racist because we don't have to. Uh, whereas in the south, mm, when, when people fight for Confederate flags and whatnot, you know where they're coming from and shit. 
And they can say it's heritage and they can say it's everything there. <laughs> Shana. <laughs> Goddess of love as you are. Thank you, Shana. Shana, if you will, deliver vodka and give me a thrill. And hug me as long as you shall live. Uh, many courageous groups worked hard at state and local levels throughout the end of the 19th century. Susan B. Anthony, every year, and she died before suffrage, uh, Susan B. Anthony every year addressed Congress and every year asked for the women's vote and every year was ignored and denied. Mm. She's not the only woman. There were zillions of women, but she famously did. Um, so in 1913, the first major national efforts were undertaken, beginning with a massive parade in Washington, D.C. on March 3rd, one day before the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson, who had a stroke in his second term and was non compass mentis. And that meant that his condition was that he'd go like, um, you'd go, uh, Mr. Wilson, do you need a, President Wilson, do you need a pen? And he'd go, I don't want a pen right now because he couldn't hold it. Does that sound familiar to anyone? This is post-stroke. His wife, Edith, ran the country de facto for several years. She's the first woman president. Um, Woodrow Wilson had some good points. What is it? Uh, racist? What does a public enemy say? Simple and plain. Fucker was racist. Simple and plain. Mother fuck him and John Wayne. Uh, organized by Alice Paul for the National American Women's Suffrage Association, the parade calling for a, a constitutional amendment featuring 8,000 marchers, including nine bands, four mounted brigades, 20 floats, and an allegorical performance near the Treasury Building. I have no idea what that was. <laughs> the parade began late and appeared to be off to a good start until the route along Pennsylvania Avenue became choked with tens of thousands of spectators mostly men in town for the inauguration. Marchers were jostled and ridiculed by many in the crowd. Some were tripped, others assaulted. This is men tripping and assaulting women in a crowd in 1913. Remember when everyone wore a Darby hat? And women are in those bonnets with the high-waisted skirts and the fucking horrible tops and the little boots and whatnot? Um, this is how men have acted forever. Uh, police appeared to be indifferent to the struggling paraders or sympathetic to the mob. Before the day was out, 100 marchers had been hospitalized. The mistreatment of the marchers amplified the offense and the cause into a major news story. Led to congressional hearings where the D.C. superintendent of police lost his job. Marches don't matter. You should never march. Never march. No one cares. Fuck you. Marches so matter. It's the uh, anniversary of Selma today, you guys. The, I mean, the march over the bridge, the Edmund J. Pettus Bridge. Yes, Edmund J. Pettus was a racist. No, they shouldn't change the name of the bridge. The name of the racist should always be there so that you know that it's named for a racist who ran a unit in the Civil War and was a wild racist. Um, you can't rewrite history by whitewashing history. You must embrace history um, and know that this happened and that this giant march happened and that because of the brutality of the men in the crowd and the indifference of the cops, nine years, yes, yeah, six years later, mm, uh, 
What began in 1913 took another seven years to make it through Congress. In 1920, the 19th Amendment secured the vote for women. Um, This happened today, but by a week from now, it may be irrelevant. Uh, FBI Director James B. Comey, who shall live in fucking infamy, along with J. Edgar Hoover. There's nothing James Comey hasn't done to destroy this country, in my estimation. Asked the Justice Department to publicly reject... Uh, the president's assertion that Barack Obama ordered the tapping of his phones. That happened today. Um, uh, let's see here. Moving on. Uh, a Canadian girl uh, took down, you know, the white supremacist who was on Maher's show a couple of weeks ago. I daren't say his name because I don't care for him at all. It was a 16-year-old girl, and she said in Canada, she dug up the footage uh, when she heard he was uh, to speak at the CPAC conference. Um, I see him as the embodiment of the awfulness you see over the past few years with the general tilt of millennial conservatism. It's diverged from the... By the way, this is a 16-year-old. It's diverged from this traditional conservatism so much, fucking A. You've seen it essentially become an awfulness and all about attacking the left and not about actual principles. It has nothing to do with conservative ideology so much as it has with opposing the leftists, social justice warriors, and so on and so forth. Um... She dug up the footage of him talking about um, how pedophilia was a really great thing and whatnot. And um, that's why he lost his spot at the CPAC conference. He lost his book deal and he lost his job at Pride Park. You can make a difference. A 16-year-old Canadian girl did this to him. What did you say? Fuck yeah, millennials. Are you saying fuck yeah, millennials? Yeah. Right on. I adore the young. I can't wait for my generation to die off. You'll miss me. But you'll remember. I like just you. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a big Bomar parade. I might have to edit that out of the show. Is that libelous? <laughs> Whatever. Uh, Amanda Yarbrough sent me this. Uh, and uh, it's a, she, I was talking about W.E.B. Du Bois uh, because it was Black History Month. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was a historian, a professor, a, uh, an advocate, and a, 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 an, an enormously influential American, pardon me, who helped start uh, the NAACP. She wrote me and said... Uh, why don't you talk about his wife, Shirley Graham Du Bois? Uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois uh, was a black woman um, born in 1896 in Indianapolis. Um, I want to cut to the chase here. She had a, a husband previous to W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, as I say, was an influential um, uh, uh, American for a good deal of time, a, a real intellectual and, and a mover and shaker in the black community. In 1928, Shirley studied theories of musical composition and orchestration at Paris Sorbonne, becoming fluent in French. After leaving France, Graham toured around the country as a musical instructor at Morgan College, educating and inspiring an appreciation for the contributions of black music to, uh, to music at large. During this time, she continued her studies at Howard and the musical arts in New York City. In 31, uh, she saw the importance of plays as a site of social activism and applied to Oberlin. The stage, whether it was through the medium of music or plays, was a space where Negroes could contest through their art the distorted perceptions and or images of them. Shirley Graham's opera, Tom Tom, debuted in Cleveland in 1932. 
The story follows the lives of four archetypal characters, the voodoo man, the mother, the girl, and the boy from Africa, through the middle passage to North America, where they undergo acculturation and fuse their traditional African ethos with a developing and ever-evolving American ethos, which results in new cultural forms, artistic expressions, utterances, and musical forms. Do you dig the eloquence uh, of the 20s? Notice there's no bad... Sad. <laughs> Illiteracy is a blight. Um, ignorance is willful. Stupidity and uneducation, I always understand. You have to educate yourself. I dig it. Um, but ignorance is something you own. And if you're fucking ignorant, people who... Uh, 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 I don't fucking... I don't like... Right, I won't use that voice. <laughs> Let me not use the white redneck voice. Let me use the voice of those of, that you hear on network television and cable television, which is the voice of the white, educated Harvard, uh, you know, right? Uh, the conservatives that echo and uh, uh, reiterate all of the lies that are going down now. And you still see them every day. They're on Fox News, but they're also on CNN. They're on MSNBC. They're on every bloody thing. They're on the radio. They're on NPR. They're, they're on all mainstream media outlets. You hear them all the time. They're white people, and they uh, generally, and they, uh, well, you know, there's no evidence there that there's anything going on with Russia. Yeah. This shouldn't be a witch hunt. We should take a step back and look at, this is time to support the, right? Because I'm, I always do the redneck voice, but poor rednecks have no voice in America. They're as much a victim as anyone else in this fucking country. Because they really don't have any power. They've just subscribed to this weird thing that isn't really real and that isn't going to do them any goddamn good. It's the elite, and I don't mean the liberal West Coast elite, the show business swirling vortex of baby-killing celebrity elite <laughs> that I belong to. <laughs> I mean the East Coast think tank Heritage Foundation Hoover Institute uh, 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 trilateral commission type elite that you see on television so often uh, reiterating talking points and trying to keep this country from moving forward. They're the ones who will say, it's not a Muslim ban, it's a travel ban. <laughs> if racism is your position, if homophobia is your position, if misogyny is your position, and being... Opposed to the funding of Planned Parenthood is misogyny. There's no other way to put it. Being against the funding for public television is misogyny. And cruelty to children is what it is. Is what it is. That's not a political opinion. People go, well, I don't want to get into politics. No, it's not politics. It's not politics. You have an unsupportable opinion. That's not politics. Politics is if you say, I think there should be medical marijuana. And I go, I don't know. Medical marijuana could be a little corporate. <laughs> if you say, I hate black people and women and I want to strip them of all their rights. That's not a supportable political position. That's being a racist, misogynist piece of shit. <laughs> I wish I'd said it more eloquently. Especially in light of Ms. Du Bois, Ms. Graham. Uh, 
And in any case, uh, she authored seven plays, but I wanted to tell you about this. Uh, upon completion of her degree, uh, she got a master's thesis on the survival, the survival of Africanisms in modern music, argued that European music was influenced by African music. <clears throat> um, uh, Irving Berlin, who wrote uh, 10,000 songs and lived to be 102 years old, is one of the great Jewish songwriters in American history. There's no question. His first great hit is from 1918, right around the end of World War I. And it goes like this. Come on along. Come on along. Let me take you by the hand. And let us stand. And let us stand. The man who led the band. It's Alexander's Ragtime Band, right? That's a black song. <laughs> Irving Berlin heard black jazz and went, hmm. Right? Uh, Al Jolson, whatever you want to talk about. Appropriation. We all know what appropriation is. Um, the idea that America is a vacuum and that there's white music and black music and all that, ridiculous. You've got to be fucking kidding me. Um, uh, we, we played Jimi Hendrix earlier tonight, and uh, I defy you. Uh, uh, that's it, I just defy you. <laughs> Woo! She maintained a relationship with Du Bois. Uh, Shirley and Du Bois were comrades in their fight for social justice and black social mobility. She maintained a relationship with Du Bois. Social mobility is a very interesting phrase because it's something that this administration doesn't want to see happen. Social mobility is important for all races. And I know I bang on white people a lot and white people get really mad at me for it. Believe me, they do. Um, uh, again, I'll say, my mother was a, 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 from a, basically a sharecropper farm in Mississippi. That doesn't make me like so cool and I'm not trying to fuck out, trot out cred. I'm just saying that uh, uh, white people are poor too and white people are poorer uh, than they've ever been in a lot of ways. And white people are on drugs and white people have a lot of fucking problems. I get it. I get it. Um, it doesn't excuse being an ignorant bag of fucking weirdness. <laughs> but social mobility is really important. And the only way you create social mobility is through education and letting people have a, a level playing field. That means women and men being paid the same wages, whatever race they are, whatever gender they are, uh, to, to enter the job market. It also means a million other things. Um, the mindset of a country has to be such that everyone is moving forward at the same time, not that there's others. There's others here. There's Jews there, and we knock down their cemeteries. There's Muslims, and we burn their mosques. There's women, and we close their fucking health centers. There's queers, and we won't let them uh, have their rights. There's trans people, and we won't let them use the bathroom. That's nonsense. We, we, we've learned too much to go back to that, and we're not going back to that. Um, uh, but that's what social mobility means, I think, in that instance. Uh, and also being able to raise yourself up by earning a couple of fucking clams in this fucking capitalist-ass society. She maintained a relationship with Du Bois whose beginnings are difficult to trace with accuracy. She would often communicate with leading figures of the day, including Du Bois, sharing her work and receiving their critique. Shirley even had Du Bois proofread her master's thesis. Interestingly, after achieving success as a playwright and director for Chicago's black unit of the Federal Theater Project, Du Bois began sending his place to her for critique. Um, uh, Shirley Graham is an, an amazing individual. And uh, because it's Women's History Month, uh, there really can't be enough emphasis on everything that women have done. History, as I say uh, in my unbelievably marvelously written book, <laughs> is written by icky white guys who beat their maids. And that's why you hear so much about how great white guys are. Um, that's why... 
Lynn uh, Manuel Miranda's um, uh, Hamilton play is so profound um, that someone who's not a white guy would write a play about white guys and the bullshit uh, uh, therein. Um, I can't tell you how excited I am uh, for the next few years to transpire because aside from the incessant shitstorm uh, and maelstrom of grief and um, surus, uh, that the Republicans want to visit upon us. And I'm not just saying him. I'm not just saying uh, uh, a Papaya Pinochet. Because... <laughs> that was Jennifer's. My, my last one... Jennifer's brilliant. My last one was Zig Heil and Roy. I know. It's not that good. It's not that good. It's not that good. I know. Is that, I know, and I, I topped hers with mine, which was shitty. <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that, <laughs> is that I think uh, uh, um, uh, it, uh, if it required, uh, the, uh, what, what I meant to get at was this. The responsibility needs to be laid uh, all the way around. Um, this isn't one person, and it isn't one cabinet, and it isn't one group of people, although he wants to create La Cosa Nostra, right? Our thing uh, around him, uh, uh, a crime family that has no responsibility outside itself, and that uh, the brothers-in-law and the, the sisters-in-law and the, the sons-in-law and the daughters and everybody's involved in the fucking machinations. Um, it, it's, it's a matter of... <laughs> The, uh, that moving forward, uh, 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 I lost my thread. <laughs> I know, right? Go Jennifer. I know. Papaya Pinochet. <laughs> I fucking laughed. Zeke Holland Roy really doesn't measure up to that. There's no question of that. That's not at all, man. Zeke Holland Roy is a foul ball. <laughs> Papaya Pinochet is La Pelota. <laughs> the blame has to be laid on the Republican Party because they're standing up for this. They're backing it up. They're not the ones investigating it. They're the ones being timid. They're the ones whose voices are so soft and unhearable. They're the ones who are being so diffident. During the Obama administration, they never shut up about how bad Obama was and how awful it was and oh my God, all the things he's doing and he's overreaching his bounds and why doesn't he show his birth certificate and why doesn't he do all these things? Why won't the black man show me his papers? Why won't he legitimize himself? And now you don't hear anything about the orange man. They don't say a goddamn word. The crazier it gets, the more unbalanced it gets, the GOP says fuck all so they need to be held responsible for all of this um, in a big goddamn way and I'll go even further and not to be Robespierre up here but the Democrats who aren't on the fucking train need to be held responsible too baby do they ever do they ever their feet need to be held to the fire until the time can come when they can be replaced and that's how that works they're out uh, what, how do you pronounce his name in West Virginia? Minchin? Munchin? He's voted for so many awful things. He needs to go. There's a lot of them. Um, we know the deal. In any case, um, 
I can't tell you how much uh, uh, I appreciate you guys coming out tonight. No, I'm not going to get all sentimental and teary and shit like that. And I'm going to remember what I'm saying. I realized there was an egregious pause a moment ago. <laughs> it's not that I'm thinking toward Paris, although I always am. <laughs> People often ask me, they say, Greg, let me ask you this. What's your favorite gig? And I have a lot of favorite gigs. Seattle is a gig that I enjoy, obviously. You're so uh, kind and smart and with it. Um, I, I love a lot of places. Um, but I'll say, I always say Paris. And they go, well, <laughs> and the answer is so simple. It's like, well, when the show's over, you're in Paris. <laughs> I'm like, I, I mentioned before, we're in Akron, Ohio in August. I mean, April. One of the months were they in it. I don't know. Don't fucking hold me to rights. We're in Akron, Ohio in April. And I'm sure it's going to be divine beyond all measure. A trip to the moon on gossamer wings. Akron is a... I'm going to build a stairway to paradise. I'm certain that Akron has something good. I am. There will be a coffee shop, there'll be a bar, there'll be a person that'll make you go, fuck yeah, Akron. But when the show's over in Akron, we're going to have to go to a bar in Akron. Last year, we were in Green Bay. I have nothing against Green Bay. I, there, it's, a, it's a place... They were lovely. They were lovely. If I may be so forward, they weren't the most literate group I've ever played for. Mind you, it was an improvisational show, so the literacy wasn't utterly required, although it's handy. When you th say things like, what's your favorite book? And they yell out, Lombardi's biography! And you're like, that's all you've got at this point? We went to the bar after. Have I told this? We went to the bar after. And someone ordered a um, Bloody Mary. And it had a sausage, a pickle, a piece of cheese, a tomato, a chili pepper, a, 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 a cheddar. There was a sausage. And not a piece of cheese, a fucking triangle of cheese. And it's like, you don't need to do that. Wisconsin, you're trying too hard. <laughs> Be like Seattle. Give me a shit drink in a plastic cup. So that I don't hit anyone in the eye with it after the show. Because they didn't like my fucking tattoo of Satan. I didn't even hear what you said. You've been very vocal tonight. Are you drinking? Yes. yes. I can tell because you're giving voice to all your inner thoughts. Sometimes when people get drunk, they go like, it's fucking cold in here. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I can eat a taco. You're not at that level, but you are yelling out a lot of your interior monologue. I'm a comedian and I'm used to it, so. Because people in the house will go like, I don't know where my car is. 
You think I've sat at home and I've written all these words, but they don't matter. Because someone's out in the audience going, Taco! Where's my shoe? I don't have a shoe! I've never actually lost a shoe. But I've lost a watch, glasses, sure. It's humiliating when you leave your umbrella and your coat somewhere or your phone and you go home and you're like, I don't have my phone. And then you're like, fuck, I really left my phone somewhere. And then you have to retrace your steps through your drunken path through Seattle. And you're like, I was in the U district for a while. What the fuck was I doing there? And then you're like, no, I wasn't there. I imagined I was there. Then I scored meth from a dude in front of a bar. What was that about? I should have really written an ending for this show. Oh, shit. I know you guys are like, keep going. I know you have nowhere to go. But I, of course, have to do a book signing afterward. Because I'm an author. If I write another book, and uh, I intend to, Peter Cook, the brilliant English comedian, uh, said uh, years ago, he was at a party, and a woman came up to him and said, I'm writing a book, and he went, really? Neither am I. (laughs) And he also had the greatest comment about comedy of all time. Someone said, can comedy really affect social change? And he said, yes. Look at all the Weimar Cabaret did in stopping Hitler. (laughs) The next book will have a lot less baseball in it, I'll tell you that. And a lot more women's history and a lot more women's sports stars. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, indeed. Um, I like baseball, um, but I'm having a real trouble this year with, uh, obviously, the NFL. I just can't even deal um, and the NBA, whatever. But like, professional sports to me seem like a, a, th- a whole thing organized so that white guys can gamble and that men can gamble, and that there's really no other reason for it, for the, all the men to be hurt on the field and all the men to go through all the fucking gyrations of playing out these gigantic long ass fucking seasons is just so that men can gamble as much as they fucking want. I don't really see another reason for it anymore. Um, I don't see that with the WNBA or the Women's Soccer League or Women's Tennis or anything like that. I really see in uh, track and field and all the uh, uh, swimming, all the fields where women have excelled beyond measure. And... Um, to me, that's what uh, I, I talked about baseball so goddamn much in the last book. But baseball really is a sport organized by evil old white guys to make sure that evil white guys have their fucking say all the time. And I, if I write another book, it's going to be about women's sports and women's history because I feel that that's what's been neglected in the world. And if it makes me a, a, a fruitastic fucking gay guy, who, a straight guy who won't admit he's gay, I don't care. Uh, I make no fucking case for it. Uh, uh, someone has to do it, God damn it! And uh, because I'm a white privileged person, uh, I'm going to use my tiny platform uh, to try to destroy the patriarchy as much as I fucking can. You have been the smartest con in the world. I have been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out. May every page that you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings be a cool papa bell.
And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. I wish you nothing but love. Good night. Thanks, you guys. I love you. Why aren't you playing the message, Jules? Why does it sound like shit, Jules? Uh, yeah, I know. Play the message, Jules. That was my big finish where everyone was clapping for me and shit. Jules. Play the message, Jules. It sounds like shit, Jules. Find it on the internet and play it. Jules, everything went so well up till there. No, it still sounds like shit. Stop playing it. Everyone's going to walk out in silence? Play something, goddammit. There we go. 